to the Wellbeing Rebellion, the podcast that's changing workplace cultures for good. We're your hosts, Ngazi Wella and Obehi Alafoje. Let's get this rebellion started. In today's episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion, I'm joined by Ruth Kutsi. Ruth is the founder of Optimist Coach Academy and her own coaching business. She's a best-selling author and podcaster, and her core message is about using positive psychology and neuroscience to understand yourself and to lead a more fulfilling life. In her businesses, she's trained and coached thousands of people worldwide and is one of less than 100 master certified coaches in the UK. Her second book, How to Feel Better, is out in May 2023. I met Ruth when I trained with Optimus as a professional coach and was immediately struck by her passion for coaching and personal development. In this episode, Ruth and I share some honest and practical insights into why the modern workplace should embrace the coaching culture. Let's dive in, Rebels. Hi, Ruth. Thank you for joining us. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Great. Well, I want to get straight into it because I know you've got a lot to say and uh, our audience is going to be dying to hear your take on leadership and well-being and how we can improve both through coaching. But the first thing I wanted to know was obviously uh, the Wellbeing Rebellion is all about mental health and well-being. Mm. Have you ever struggled with your own mental health in the past? Yes. Um, so I have, I would say I have quite a lot. I I first realized I was suffering from anxiety and a little bit of depression, but mainly anxiety when I was 14, but I think I probably had been suffering from it before then. And then I also had PTSD. So I had a lot of anxiety around that. Um, I also think I was misdiagnosed as having depression, um, when I was, probably in my 20s and I actually think it was my ADHD so I think that I have been misdiagnosed with depression but anxiety is something that I have had a lot of over my life and PTSD. We've we've got that in common um, the ADHD uh, diagnosis and it's something that I've been thinking about recently about how common it is for neurodiversity and some mental uh, health challenges to be comorbid or to go mm. hand in hand and, and often to be misdiagnosed by the doctors as just being, oh, you've got uh, anxiety or depression when in fact what you have is is something like ADHD or autism. Yeah. But how how did you get through your various challenges with your mental health? So I think when I was a teenager, I was identified. I mean, this I remember as, and I had to see the school counsellor. And the reason that I was identified is because my attendance was really, really low at school. Um, The reason it was really low is because I really didn't like school. Ironic that I became a deputy head in the end. Um, So I had counselling support then. And then when I was older, I had quite a bit of therapy And I'd already studied psychology. So I think I studied psychology because I wanted to understand why I was different and what was wrong with me. Um, And that started helping me. And I lived in New York when I was in my early 20s. So 
I got quite into self like you know, what we call self-help books and even like mindfulness and stuff like journaling from my early 20s so I was you know I've always been like I, I was definitely two different people then I was like the Ruth that was going out partying um and then the Ruth that was doing yoga and journaling and um you know drinking green juice and um and really I'm reading self-help so mm. yeah, living in New York helped me because back then, what I'm talking like 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, back then it was so far advanced than London. It was really normal to say, oh, I'm going to go to a meditation class or I'm going okay. to. So I started really exploring that element of well-being alongside therapy. And actually New York helped me too. Gosh, this is like a love letter to New York because... Mm. In the UK, 20 years ago, people still didn't really talk about therapy, whereas my American friends were like, looked at me the same way that people in the UK would have looked at you if you said you had a therapist. They looked at you if you said you didn't. So you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I should get one of these things. So therapy really helped me there as well. I think that's that's a real um, difference between the UK and the US culturally. Therapists are derogate in the states as far as we can see from the movies and tv shows that we watch everybody's got a therapist there um that is the perception at least whereas here i'd say not even 20 years ago ruth even today it is rare to have a a therapist we wouldn't call them therapists anyway we call them counselors or a coach or a doctor but Mm. not not a therapist and it's definitely not something that we do if we consider ourselves healthy. It's something that we do because we're broken in some way and we want to be fixed. That yeah. I don't think that's changed. Do you? I don't think it has, but I think, oh my gosh, like we need it to change because actually in reality, therapy is supportive and helps you if you do feel... Like if you're feeling good, you know, mm. it's, it, it's actually really beneficial to us if we feel good to have therapy because it gives us tools. And for me, so I'm just going to give you an example. I remember when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I had, because I suffered from anxiety before, because I had PTSD before, I was, <laughs> I was anxious about my anxiety coming back. Um, mm. So I was like, okay, so what can I do? And I saw this great therapist. He had the best name. He was called Peter Stringfellow, which uh, obviously, obviously he wasn't the Peter Stringfellow from okay, the Okay, because that's a different kind of therapy. <laughs> that would be a different kind of therapy. Yeah. I mean, he did say to me, he was a lovely, amazing Welsh guy. He did say, what, like, what do you think brought me to therapy? And I'm like, he's like, imagine being called Peter Stringfellow. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can see why you're in this field. Um, So I had CBT, like when I was feeling good, because I wanted to make sure that I had what I needed if I didn't feel good. Now, I think Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have known about that so much if I hadn't had it previously. And I wouldn't have known about that so much if I hadn't studied psychology as well. So Mm -hmm. I guess the kind of studying psychology and by that point, I'd got a master's in psychology um, and done a lot of other studies as well. So by that point, I was like, I know that actually this isn't about being fixed. This is about 
well-being and that's the difference isn't it like if we're mm. looking at our overall well-being we can all feel better I think that's the big shift that we need to make as a society in the UK mm. if we're going to do something to really redress this worrying trend of increasing poor mental health I think mm. we need to stop looking at it as something that you treat only because it's crisis mm. and start looking at, at it preventatively. When we talk about physical health, right, mm. we know that if we do not continue to look after our physical health by eating the right things and exercising and, yes, in moderation, but taking gentle, good care of ourselves, then we are a greater risk of of a disease or yeah. an injury. It's the same thing with our mental well-being. We have to take care of it, as you say, even when you're well, to maintain mm. it. But we just don't see it that way. We don't think of our minds the same way as we think of our bodies at all. We don't. And I think it's because there's this there's a thing with humans, isn't there? Like, what is tangible? So, like, if I've hurt... So, for example, my daughter, bless her, has hurt her leg. So, she's got, like, a boot on. So, everyone will be like, oh, how's your leg? You know, mm. like... And, obviously, she loves it because she's like, oh, well... She, she likes talking about Is that your hurt. impression of your daughter? Yeah, she doesn't really talk like that. But she's like, <laughs> yeah, she's like, she quite likes having the boot because she gets attention. Mm-hmm. But if she had, you know anxiety or you know or she was having obsessive thoughts or she was like people wouldn't be like oh how are you Mm. because they wouldn't see it and I think there's this thing that when we see something physically we believe it but there's this perception that our mental health is like intangible and there seems to be this idea that when something is intangible that we can't actually pin anything to it if that makes sense so yeah if it's intangible then we don't see it Mm. same is true with neurodivergence this is going off on a tangent now Mm. but I have to say it the number of people including I love you Mm. and uh, I'm not judging you but my medical professional mum and dad Mm. who don't quite believe my ADHD diagnosis mm. because they it's a it's a it's a mental thing I like number of people who think ADHD is like well but everybody forgets stuff everybody's oh, yeah. disorganized I'm like oh. everybody's a bit ADHD yeah 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 because you can't spectrum, it. Isn't it? yeah so I, <laughs> I know I know so I, I I do I do think that with mental health that's that's part of the issue the other part is I think it's a real deep-rooted fear of mm. this unknown that can have such pervasive effect. It's that word crazy. It's that word mad. And if I really ask about it, then they might tell me. And I don't know if I'll, what I'll do about it if she tells me what's going on. And mm. what if she's got... Vo- uh, I think there's that element too. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, do, I do definitely agree with this need for us in the UK, at least, definitely in the whole of Europe to get better at preventative and proactive care of our mental well-being by using Mm. experts to come and help us not just by you know oh I'll do meditation you know for five minutes every other day that's great but actually going and and talking 
life through. Personally, I still see a therapist. It's part of my mm -hmm. kind of clinical supervision as a coach. I've got a weekly standing appointment because it's something that you should do to stop it, uh, things from coming on top of you and overwhelming you. There's nothing Definitely. wrong with it. It no, helps it, keep you strong. Exactly. And I I have just finished working with a particular therapist, but I think I'm going to work with somebody who is, because I shared with you, I've, I've got a bit of a health thing that I didn't know I had. I'm absolutely mm -hmm. fine. A bit of a physical health thing. And I can see that my psychological reaction to it is interesting and I think that I need to work with a therapist who can support me on that so I think we're always evolving and part of this is about you know isn't it amazing that we can have this this amount of support for ourselves because mm. when we feel better when we are able to take good care of ourselves we can make better decisions but we can also take good care of other people as well and there's a lot of research about how things like happiness actually you know, it's not just a fluffy thing. Happy mm. employees are more productive. Mm. I mean, who doesn't want productive and happy employees? I don't know. Well, we need them. We're in an yeah. economic crisis. We need our employees to be able to mm. be as productive, as effective, as innovative, as resilient, as everything is possible to get mm. us out of this. We can't just expect it from them because... Well, that's what needs to happen. We have to empower them. And, and empowerment looks perhaps different to, well, you've got a brand new laptop. Empowerment is, that's not it. It's about how do I make that whole person strong enough for this fight? Is that something that you touch on in your new book? Can you yeah. tell us a bit about yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. So the book is around self-coaching. It's about how can you actually support yourself to feel better. So it's a different lens to coaching in that rather than starting with the goal or the focus, we start by looking inward. We start by assessing, okay, where are we currently? And then from there, it's about, okay, so when we've identified that, what do we want to change? What is that goal? What is that desire? And then it's about the path and then it's about integrating because really it's about helping people understand themselves because mm. we don't take enough time to understand ourselves and we don't take enough time to actually look and go, yeah, I'm really happy with this element of my life, but actually I'm finding this really challenging or I'm, you know, I'm feeling really, I don't like the word, but I'm just thinking of a different word. I'm feeling really activated by this. I'm really stuck in these relationships. Or I'm noticing it as a pattern in relationships where I often feel like, you know, resentful or, or things like that. So it's about helping people to understand and also helping people to be compassionate with themselves. Because so many people I meet and I talk to and they say things like, okay, common one. I don't feel good enough. Like mm. I actually beat myself up so much because I don't think I'm good enough because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm just such a believer in that we can all be compassionate to ourselves. Mm. Yeah. What's the book called? The book is called How to Feel Better. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I, I mm. think you and I, obviously we're in, 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 mm. in the same field, very similar field. Yeah. I come across that a lot. I, I guess maybe I'm more towards the end of the line where 
people have been feeling not good enough for so long that it's become a significant problem for them in their lives. But you're right in that if we could just treat ourselves with more kindness, care, mm. compassion, and love, it it's not just a benefit to us, but to everybody who interacts with us, everybody who benefits from the things that we are then able to do. It's the surefire way to make society a happier, healthier place to be and the mm. workplace. Yeah. I yeah, definitely. definitely. So. And the workplace. And because I we spend so much time of our lives at work. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it's a, it's a, it's a necessary part of being an, a human adult. Mm. And I, I do think that our line managers in the workplace bear some responsibility to helping us to be happier at work. Now, I'm being very careful with my words here. It is not mm. your job as a line manager to make someone happy. It is your job to enable them to make themselves happy by structuring work in a way that it's possible, by communicating, by signposting for help when there's problems, that kind of thing. It's just enabling, creating the right environment for them yes. to flourish. And part of that, it's a skill. It's a skill that leaders are assumed to have, but mm -hmm. many times do not have. Mm. They've not been shown themselves how to do it. And it's mm. something that I think that um, needs to change in terms of what our expectation of a leader's role is in the workplace, a manager's role. It's got, I think it, uh, that's mm. a key change, right? It's gone from being a manager to a leader. Yeah, that's what we need now because the world is so complex and so broken in a way. We need leaders to guide us through. Yeah, I think and to model as well for us, so we can exactly. see. Okay, so actually, we want our leaders to be modeling well-being. Oh my gosh, I got this really wrong. I remember, like, I used to say to people, "Be flexible with your work. Do all of this." Now I wasn't. Mm -hmm. My coach said to me, well, how can you? And I was like, well, if I modeled it, if I put, I've got my gym appointments, if I put this stuff in my diary and I would never, so we have a shared diary system, but I would never expect anybody else to share what they're doing with their time. I do because I'm modeling it. So I mm -hmm. I have like gym appointment, kids, stuff like that, but nobody else in the team needs to because I trust that they're doing what's right for them. But by doing that, I now notice, like, for example, Everybody in my team blocks out a lunch break. People in my team just block out, busy. Great. I don't need mm -hmm. to know what you're doing. You could be doing whatever you want. Mm. Yeah. And that requires a different mindset. Why do you think leaders need to have a coaching mindset? Do you think they mm -hmm. should? Yeah, because I think that having a coaching mindset enables people to be open to active listening and questioning. And evoking awareness. I think that the best leaders listen. The best mm -hmm. leaders actually listen and they admit when they've got something wrong and they support their team to have autonomy in decision making. So you said active listening. How's mm. that different from just listening? Active listening is listening to what people say and what they don't say. It's about looking at that congruence between the words, 
the tonality, the body language, everything. Mm. Yeah. It's that thing that I I do mm. a lot that makes me um, a dangerous conversationalist yeah. because I'll be looking at your facial expressions. I'll be looking at your body position and, I, and I'm not afraid to pick up on it at all. But yeah. you as a leader, you need to do that. And that yeah. becomes really tricky, right? When you've got a hybrid workplace, how yeah. can they do that when we're not seeing them every day? Creating touch points, building the culture, and this takes time. And again, I've learned this from doing it. I've, I've helped businesses do it, but doing it myself has been more challenging as it always is. Um, are creating the culture where it's okay to get things wrong where it's okay to not know the answers mm. creating a culture where if somebody does say that they need help providing them with help creating a culture where you value happiness and well-being as much as everything else creating a culture where you have true flexibility and where you do actually look out for your team and if your team so for example I had a member of my team yesterday who said is it okay if I do this tomorrow? I really need to do this family thing. I've got to move an appointment. Of course it is. I've never, ever said no to any of those appointments. And I think that that is a really interesting place to be. It's about creating that space. Yeah. You said the secret word, culture. It's all about yeah. culture. That is why we're a culture change consultancy because mental well-being isn't, it's not a one and done thing. It's not a short-term thing. It is about creating a culture of well-being yeah. in your organization takes time takes investment yeah. but is the only way to get your employees to feel psychologically safe mm -hmm. to feel that they can trust you and to open up so yeah uh, I fully I fully agree our listeners who um, work in organizations of different sizes how can yeah. they help their leaders demonstrate coaching skills in their management styles? So I think it's about giving space. It's about giving space for conversations that aren't always about work. It's about creating a culture that is that values well-being. Like this is a thing. Like lots of people say, oh, oh, we look, we look at well-being, we've got a snooker table or something like that. No, actually, are you listening to what people need? Are you noticing? Um, if people are saying that they, they're, they're feeling overwhelmed. Is it okay if people, I mean, I had somebody who was who said to me a couple of years ago, I, I, I'm feeling really overwhelmed working five days a week. And I was like, okay, so how about we have a discussion about your workload and also what's going to work best for you? Because mm. I've never said you need to work five days a week. And I think, you know, actually having those conversations I didn't say that last bit by the way because that wouldn't have been that coachy but yeah <laughs> actually allowing those conversations and it's about creating a safe space so that if people understand that if they have those conversations it's about it's safe for them they're not going to have repercussions if they say actually I'm really struggling with my mental well-being actually I really feel like this way isn't working for me it's much better that we know because then we can support people genuinely do you know, I mean, I, I have these conversations all the time, Ruth. I'm saying this kind of stuff all the time. And yet I'm not seeing it in action nearly enough because mm. companies are are just not moving in that direction yeah. at the speed yeah. and pace that their employees need them to. 
they seem mm. to there seems to be a disconnect between what we feel we should say and do mm. which is you matter your well-being is of utmost importance to us and we will take steps to ensure that and what they actually are being tasked and charged mm. with doing which is profit 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 and and the thing yeah. is the two are not mutually exclusive and they're not <laughs> that's what i want people to understand you cannot make sustainable profit without sustaining your employees welfare full stop mm. you can't in the mm. end it costs you it costs you in time in turnover in people in mm. in so much expertise experience yeah. opportunity cost if you keep churning people at the rate that we seem to be witnessing right now and there has to be some change yeah that is made because there's, there's this other aspect that mm. we can as organizations create a culture and create a culture that is open create a culture that is safe but some people may not feel safe yeah right Again, I'm I, at risk of sounding like a broken record. The key to that is, is the senior leadership believing and, and demonstrating in their actions and words that well-being, employee welfare is important to them and mm-hmm. then cascading that down through the organization from the very yeah. top to the bottom C-suite, shop floor. And the leaders of the individuals, the line managers, Mm. need to be understanding of that message and supportive of that message on a practical level with each employee. What's one piece of advice you could give to uh, the audience about the importance of developing your leaders then, the C-suiters and the line managers in the workplace and why? I think that modelling is my biggest bit of advice and I think it actually being okay to be vulnerable. You do not understand how significant it would be that, and I'm not saying that you make up something around it, but how significant would it be if you realised that your manager or your leader had also had a time where they struggled with their well-being or their mental health. How significant? Because it's normalizing it. The more that we can have conversations, the more we can normalize the fact that this is not a, oh, I'm mentally unwell, I'm mentally well. It is a continuum. Mm -hmm. Every single person, and I know the data says it's something like one in three, I call beep, beep, because it's a it's a podcast. I call beep beep on that because I actually think that I do not know and I've never come across anybody in my lifetime who has not at some point gone to that actually they're not thriving. And there was some research, I think it was done by AXA who do the health insurance yes. recently and they said the UK is the worst for this about 20% of people or over 20% of people in the UK are actually um the danger zone or threat zone with their mental well-being and a, a quarter more are languishing so they're not thriving mm-hmm. so actually we've got nearly half of our workforce who mm-hmm. are not feeling good half of our workforce 
Mm. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And if we don't start, if we don't start, you know, I say the pool table or the yoga class, like that's just a plaster. Like the, the first stage is to actually let people know that they can talk. Let people know it's not a stigma to not, you know, it doesn't mean that they're not able to do their job. It doesn't mean they're going to get sacked. It doesn't mean any of these things. If they say, actually, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now, or I've been quite stressed out. You probably know this as well, but the number one determinant of our employees' performance is the quality and quantity of their sleep. Mm. Now, obviously, we can't measure that, but it's it's symptomatic, isn't it? You know, when I don't sleep, guess what? It's because yeah. usually I've got a lot of stuff on my mind. It's because I'm stressed. So it's just, you know, all of this stuff is so interesting. But I think, I think it starts with conversations and normalizing. That's what we say. Normalize the, the conversation around mental health in the workplace. But the thing is, um, I think HR... CEOs, senior leadership in general, they understand that that's what should happen. It should mm-hmm. be possible for employees to talk about their mental health. Yeah. I don't think there's a company in the land that would say at this company, it is not, it is not acceptable for you to discuss your personal <laughs> well-being or anything like that. Keep that yeah. stuff to yourself and yeah. just come to work. They'll all say it, but the fact is very few live it Mm. there's not there's not enough companies where truly truly each employee feels that level of psychological safety Mm. where they actually can open up very few managers even fewer managers feel that it is safe for them to open up and what we're Mm -hmm. saying isn't you should be able to go on the tannoy and shout to the whole of the, the <laughs> shop floor. By the way, I didn't sleep well last night because I was worried about my husband who's been having... That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. But we're talking about knowing that you can talk to someone and not just the mental health first aider, mm-hmm. okay? Not just the mental yeah. health first aider and not just the HR, please. Mm. But you can talk to someone, your line manager, a colleague, a on-site therapist, somebody who's in a position to assist you. Mm. I think that's the key thing. It's not just about, oh, well, I can talk to Pat in the break room. It's I can talk to my manager and they can do something that makes my situation better, makes it tenable for me. I Mm. can talk to the department head. I can talk. That's what I mean by psychological safety is that it's okay for me not to be okay in front of people who matter Mm. and it's okay for me like there's this whole thing about wearing masks as well isn't it it's okay for me not to be wearing a mask of I'm okay or you know we're in the UK I'm fine you know it's okay to say actually I'm I'm not fine Mm. there's a risk to that and it's like I always say it's simple but not easy it takes time it really does but it has to happen 
Come on, it, it has, has to happen. To happen. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, if you don't know how, get in touch. We can show you. Um, do you see any changes, improvements, dare I say, in this yeah. area of coaching, cultures of openness in the UK? Have you seen anything coming down the pipeline? I mean, I do think that people are becoming more and more open to having coaching conversations. I think people are realizing like, okay, we had, you know, it's always like a trend on LinkedIn and a new word, isn't it? We had like quiet quitting, didn't we? And we had the great Mm -hmm. resignation and we had blah, 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 all of those things. But I think that we are seeing like symptomatically, we are seeing a real shift and change in like what people want from work. And, um, we're, we're seeing that shift. And I think it's really important that when we look at creating cultures for the future, if we're not actually modeling well-being, if we're not right. having that culture, we're not going to retain people and we're not going to retain good people. And that's going to have an economic effect. And most people um, think, well, when it has an economic effect on a business, it will change. And I think this is the thing. I think this is why we're seeing a change. Let's mm-hmm. be honest, because mm-hmm. people are seeing the difference in their bottom line. I, I, and I, I don't even blame them. It's a capitalist society we live in. It and it's the bottom line that drives things. If it's not yeah. making a difference to the bottom line, it doesn't matter if it's the right thing, the moral thing, the kind thing. It's yeah. business, right? But that's why we're in a fortunate spot because the right thing to do is the financially savvy thing to do for for a business. Mm-hmm. So you can do both. You can be a good um, uh, employer and yeah. a profitable employer at the same time. And how great yeah. is that? I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? You just have to be brave enough to to commit to those changes, right? And And say, I'm in this for the long run because I know... Yeah yeah short term it might cost me something long term I will gain mm, um, and it's long term gain isn't it yeah like it's so I mean I always think so I used to be a business teacher and I used to always go on and on and on to my students like at a level as well I say like we need to talk about short-term profits and long-term profitability and why they're different and actually how you can take uh, hit your short-term profits and even make a loss but actually you're investing for long-term profitability mm. and this is exactly it like guys if my a-level business students got it like I don't understand why you know the head of the head of a hundred, like you know if Darren was able to get this you know that they, they, they had this drummed in because I was like it's you have to look at both and mm-hmm. often we can be stuck and the reason why organizations let's be honest are stuck in this short-term profitability model is because they have shareholders and yep. shareholders expect dividend. So if shareholders do not get a dividend, if the business makes a loss and there's no dividends for a year, that's going to impact the share price if that impacts the share. So actually the way our capitalist society is created, it doesn't always favor making decisions for the long term. Mm. Bonkers. Uh, I could talk to you about this for I mean, I could talk about this in terms of politics as well, but that would be a whole yeah. other thing. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you back then so we can continue this 
fascinating topic. But it, it is, it's just, I know, okay, I know I'm a bleeding heart idealist some, sometimes, but we're sitting back going, oh, this is so frustrating. Is it, there's, we're telling you the right way to do it and nobody's doing it. And I just have to give grace and have patience yeah. and know that we will get there in the end because, you know, the data backs us up, treat people right, you'll end up winning. Win-win for everybody. It's just, you know, it feels sometimes a bit like pulling that. I wonder if this is an expression, pulling the bull by the nose ring. Something like that. I, I, I know I've messed something up there somewhere, but you know what I mean. And I don't know what you messed up either, but I quite like that. Pulling the bull by the nose ring. Yeah. You're pulling wow. them along. They're reluctant, but they'll come. They'll come. So yeah, they might any... be a bit gnarly. Yeah, definitely. And you might want to be uh, standing a little bit at a distance, but still, there you go. Yeah. Um, are there any resources you can recommend that can help our audience with developing a coaching culture in their workplace? So, apart from your book, which yeah, my book. Um, I think there is a great organisation called Coaching Culture. Um, I can't remember who runs it. Um, but I think understanding like new, like how people act is really important. So anything like Atomic Habits is good. Seven and a half lessons about the brain is good. Adam Grant, actually anything that Adam Grant talks about. Um, his book, Think Again, he's an organizational behaviorist and economist but everything that he does makes a lot of sense. Simon Sinek as well makes a lot of sense in, term, in terms of that coaching mindset. So I'd say, though, quite a lot of white men there. So um, try and think of some color. I'm going to try and think of somebody who isn't a white man. Well, you know, because I'm like, I don't want just to be, I mean, there's an amazing lady called Jennifer Eberhardt who talks a lot about bias. Mm -hmm. um, but she also, there's also quite a lot there that could be relevant in terms of a coaching culture, because if you are creating a coaching culture, um, you need to be aware of how you're creating it contextually. And you need to also be aware that it's about, you know, challenging assumptions and challenging beliefs and challenging biases and understanding people's context, but thinking about how you do that, because what we interestingly it's a slightly off piece but you know unconscious bias training mm -hmm. so people who do unconscious bias training apparently it has no impact on unconscious bias and it can make it worse that because is... I think that they have got a bias against the training so they feel resentful about the training and having yeah, to do it definitely and I, I know people who have felt that and said it verbalized it in my vicinity, which, you know, well, better out than in, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah that doesn't surprise me. What we'll do is we'll put links to some of those resources, which are yeah. good. I've read quite a few. Um, I'll, mm. I'll put links in the show notes so you guys can can just dip in and decide which ones you want to 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 follow up on. I just want to end with our signature question. Okay. We ask all our guests this, and it's as a fellow well-being rebel, which I know you are. I am indeed. The, what is the one change, Ruth, that you'd like to see implemented in workplace well-being? I would like that to be, I, I would like it to be normal when we do 
appraisals to look at our our individual's well-being as well as their performance because this is where we could start to spot yeah if somebody is you know working 80 hours and they're hitting all their goals for me that's a flag that is a Mm. flag if we start making well-being as important as performance we're going because there's always that lag isn't there most of us can perform like and do that really like be here for a certain period of time and then we burn out. But if we start embracing well-being in that conversation, I think it's going to change everything. Do you know, you're the first person who's ever said that and I think it's genius because it doesn't cost anything. No, it's free. It's free. You can do this right now, today, develop a metric for well-being that you want to have all your employees adhere to and mm. start tasking them with uh, delivering on caring for themselves. I think that's genius, Ruth. Genius. Amazing. I mean, I would like to say that I've been thinking about it lots, but obviously it just came to me then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's great. Um, and I'm sure some of our audience do. If any of you have done this or are thinking about implementing it, do get in touch and let us know. And I'll pass on to Ruth your success. Ruth, thank you so, so much for joining us on the Wellbeing Rebellion. It's been wonderful speaking to you. And um, I hope we'll speak again very soon. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wellbeing Rebellion. If you liked what you just heard, please share it with your colleagues. Follow us on LinkedIn. The link will be in the show notes and generally show us some love. We want to build a whole army of fellow rebels who want to create positive workplaces for everyone. Will you join the rebellion? See you next time.